You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is Danny Anderson welcoming you again to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. Uh, thanks for listening. This is our obligatory endgame episode that I think Congress passed a law that everyone has to cover this movie. Uh, and if you have a podcast, um, it's sort of with, it comes with your FCC license or something like that. And uh, so today I have my go-to pop culture theology nerds <laughs> that are going to be joining me on this episode. Uh, we got Nathan Gilmore and Matthew Brake from Pop Culture and Theology. So I'm going to introduce them in a minute. Um, at the beginning, I want to remind everybody of uh, an upcoming hiatus uh, for the show. Don't forget about us, but I am going to be taking a break through the month of uh, June and July and maybe some of August there to uh, just kind of recover and start up a few other projects that I want to do. I also have to do some rebranding because um, it's really annoying. If you followed the Facebook page, this other podcast started the Maris review, I think is what it's called and totally stole my look. I mean, everything down to the, uh, uh, to the last, uh, to the glasses in the middle. It was uh, quite annoying. And so um, that's uh, probably in the works as well. If you have any ideas for design, uh, reach out to me, whatever. Um, but and I also wanted to thank uh, a couple new iTunes reviews I noticed recently. Um, they were up in April and I just kind of checked in and noticed them. One, a really nice one from L Blown Apart. Uh, I'm really glad I found the pi- a podcast of left-leaning actual Christians. I am uh, more conservative by personality, but I want to hear ideas I might neglect. And this is the best one I found. I really enjoy that. And uh, Troy Jordan, who's actually one of my former students, uh, he wrote a really nice review too. Um, as a former student of Danny Anderson, I was excited to find his podcast because I don't really make a big deal about it in class typically. Uh, but the classroom discussion that we had during his Kafka course helped to foster my love of literature. Uh, and he goes on. And so I'm really happy to, uh, to keep contact with Troy. He was an amazing student. And I really appreciate the iTunes reviews. If, um, I would really appreciate it if wherever you listen to your podcast, if you go ahead and give us a nice review, I think it'll help other people find us and make me feel less lonely, which is what this is really all about. So, um, But today, um, I want to get jump right into the topic of Endgame. And let me introduce uh, Nathan Gilmore of the Christian Humanist Podcast and a pro full professor now of uh, English at Emmanuel College. Nathan, how's it going? Uh, going pretty well. I'm teaching a two-week intensive Maymester, so uh, talking four hours every morning is not doing any favors to my voice, but I'll try to hold out. <laughs> and, and you're coming off of that right now as we record. And, uh, and what is your subject? Uh, ancient and medieval literature, so general uh, core curriculum literature course. Okay, um, and it sounds like a lot of fun. You got a good group, I hope, and uh, oh, yeah. and hopefully it's not baking hot yet in Georgia. Um, it's actually been absurdly the AC cold. The AC is actually running. <laughs> is it really? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's absurdly cold in Pennsylvania right now. I feel like okay. it's late November again. But um, um, and joining Nathan and I is Matthew Brake of Pop Culture and Theology. Matthew, how are you, buddy? Doing pretty good. It's actually a nice 70 degrees where I am, so I get the best of all worlds. <laughs> You're right in the middle. You, you sort of are right in the middle between both of us. Um, 
um, Matthew, I had asked you to prepare a little thing. Uh, There's a really cool event that you're sort of um, at least helping to promote. I don't know how much involvement you have in planning it, but it's called Theocon, and it's got some uh, Greek letters, so you have to sort of do some explaining about how to how to spell and pronounce this thing. But it's a really cool thing, and I stand by that I really think that the listeners of the Christian Humanist Radio Network will really be interested in this, and they should at least know about it. Do you want to introduce that event that's coming up next fall? Sure. So Theocon uh, was launched inaugurally last year at uh, Virginia Theological Seminary in Alexandria, Virginia, by uh, Reverend Shana Watson, who is a graduate of VTS. And uh, she, uh, I guess through conversations with her family, she began to see these intersections between religion and popular culture. So she launched this event that she wanted to model like uh, some sort of Comic-Con or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so like when she, when, when she launched it, there were people, a few people there in cosplay and things of that nature. Um, but it was this, uh, really cool event that, uh, transpired last October. Um, I, uh, found out about it kind of late, but I ended up going, saw, uh, James McGrath was there. So got to connect with him, um, but ended up becoming friends with Shana and ended up on her planning committee moving forward. And, um, and so we're we're doing it again. Uh, so well, real quick. So uh, we had a, some really cool inaugural speakers, including Charles Robertson, who has uh, an essay and a book on the gospel according to superheroes. Um, and then, uh, which I just gave a paper on with James McGrath um, at the Batman conference we were just at. So and you can uh, listen but, to that on McGrath's podcast, right? Yep. Yeah. Um, which is called Religion Prof. Religion Prof. Yes. Religion Prof. Yeah. And then I have a link on my own website that goes to religion prop. Um, so six degrees of link separation. Uh, <laughs> the network grows. Yes. So, uh, yeah. So it was this great event. We had some plenary speakers like Chuck Robertson. Uh, McGrath did some stuff and some moderating. You had different podcasters there. Josh Wise, who's on your show next week. Mm-hmm. That's actually where I met him and um kind of pitched the idea of doing a book with my series at, but you know, he did a live podcast with, um, another podcast called priest pulse. And there, uh, were some different, I mean, you had academics there. You also had podcasters, you had just fans of different, um, pop culture materials doing different presentations. So, um, so we're hoping to do that again this year. And unfortunately, VTS in Virginia is undergoing renovations. So this year it's at Messiah College mm-hmm. in Harrisburg, PA, um, in their Boyer Center. And uh, we're hoping to maybe grow it a little bit more, expand it a little bit more. Um, our one keynote speaker that we uh, definitely know is coming is actually A. David Lewis, who's done a bunch of stuff with religion and pop culture. He has a number of books, Graven Images, um, uh, Muslim superheroes. Uh, he co-edits a series with me. Um, so David's, I mean, David, when it comes to specifically comics and religion, he's a rock star. So, uh, you know, Danny, I know you're reading through his, his comic book that he wrote Kismet man of fate, Yeah, which is sort of the renovation of the first Muslim superhero. So, so David will be there. Um, I, I am hoping to have you there and Josh and some other people to do some podcasts. Um, so yeah, so that'll be good. It'll be September 28th. That's a Saturday uh, at Messiah College. Um, Friday night, we'll probably do some sort of reception of some kind. And then Thursday night, we're actually doing a screening of Spider-Verse. 
Oh, nice. Uh, and then maybe a little panel afterwards. So we got some good things going on there and uh, definitely looking forward to it. So uh, if you want to uh, submit a panel or a proposal, you can go to theocon.live uh, and go to panel submissions there. Um, yeah, so Theocon, you don't ha- you don't need to type in the Greek theta. It's just the TH, so don't worry about that. <laughs> yeah, it, the the logo is confusing because it looks like zero econ or something, right? And so, um, yeah, yeah, but yeah, um, I have to say though, include this includes you, Matthew. All the folks who I've met that you've mentioned, uh, largely through this Batman conference we were at, including Shana, um, they've all been really really cool and just interesting and, and delightful people. And, uh, and so I'm very excited to, uh, to take part where more of these people will be gathered. And so, and I think a lot of people would like it. So definitely take a look at it. And I, and I hope you uh, hope to see a few people there. So, um, well, I don't want to, um, belabor the point. Let's get to the, uh, let's get to end game. And so this, of course, it's been out for two or three weeks now. Um, I think anybody who's really worried about spoilers, uh, should have seen it at this point, but we will be obviously spoiling, uh, this film. There's no kind of no way to talk about it without doing so. So, uh, I think the big, the way I want to begin, first of all, Nathan, uh, you had a really interesting point about the kind of narrative structure of this movie and how it differs from a lot of the MCU that we've seen so far. Do you want to roll with that? Yeah, what's interesting is this is a superhero film that is structured as a heist film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, they use that word, uh, Ant-Man. Uh, no, actually, it's Tony Stark who says it too, uh, Ant-Man. And uh, what's interesting to me is that just about every superhero movie that I can think of is built on a sense of urgency. There is some kind of MacGuffin that is going to fall into the wrong hands or there's some kind of thing, explosion that's going to go boom, or there's some kind of hostage that's going to die, or there is something that is going to happen uh, that's going to be very, very bad, and the superheroes have to stop that very, very bad thing from happening before it happens. Mm-hmm. In this one, what, what was fascinating to me is that you have this five-year gap, and then what happens after the five-year gap is not that Thanos reemerges. He remains dead, uh, but you have... Uh, Ant-Man stepped back into the storyline and all of a sudden uh, he has an idea that by definition they could do six months later, they could do 18 months later, they could do 10 years later and it would have no consequences. And even beyond that, there wouldn't have been a big bad at the end of this thing, except that they effectively invite him over into their timeline. Mm -hmm. So this is a superhero movie. uh, And I mean, you know, in a, an entirely tangential way, uh, it reminds me of one of the old Tick comic books okay. where, uh, you know, you've got a figure called the Red Scare who hires himself out as a supervillain for hire <laughs> because there's no supervillains left. So, you know, he hires himself out so that superheroes can look heroic. That's kind of what happens here. They have to go to an alternate timeline to find a Thanos to bring back over so that they can have the big fight at the end. So, like I said, I mean, this... Uh, superhero story without any urgency is really what I found most fascinating about this movie. Uh, the su- the superheroes have to create the dramatic tension because it's not going to come to them unless they do. Uh, you're exactly right. There's no sort of exigent uh, dilemma. It's just when the technology and the idea is there. I think I had posed it as this is cinema's first example of the rodent ex machina uh, literary device. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because it sort of begins with um, kind of accidentally after five years, a rat runs across the time machine or the little quantum shrinker machine that Ant-Man has been trapped in for five years and, and 
pulls him back into our universe. Uh, and he doesn't understand that five years has gone by for him. It felt like five hours, I think he says. And so that's yeah. what gives him the idea to, uh, to pursue time travel. But, um, but yeah, there's a, a, a really interesting and unique framing device, I guess, for this, which allows them to do this kind of extended kind of meditation about trauma and loss and grief mm-hmm. um, at sure, the beginning sure. that you wouldn't have time for if there had been a, Galactus is on the way sort of story. Right. And so, mm-hmm. um, and, and so that it, and it offer it something new. I did think, you know, personally speaking, some of that was a little clunky, um, that some of that first 30 <laughs> minutes I, I thought was just a little bit clunky. Um, I, the mm-hmm. second time I saw it, I liked it more, but, um, with the exception of the opening scene with Hawkeye, which I thought was spectacular, I think that they did you know, an okay job of world building post snap. But I did think it bogged a little bit until they got, got the time heist going. And and I will say it adds a certain depth to the line that actually occurred in the trailers. uh, When Thanos says to, you know, Thor and Captain America and Iron Man that, you know, you couldn't handle your own failure. And so it leads you back to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I didn't realize when I saw the trailer, just how literal that is. I mean, they had to go and find Thanos in order to fight him again. Yeah. Yeah. Matthew, you're going to say something. Yeah. Um, just, uh, I don't know if you listened to the Vox podcast. Yeah. I was, they did their end game episode. Yes. If you but, listen to Mav and the gang at, uh, and Hannah and the gang and Wayne, Wayne was there. Um, they did a really excellent, um, breakdown of this film. Um, always go to listen to the Vox podcast. I, I agreed with them when they said this was a missed opportunity because they used a rat to bring Scott, Lang back that should have been a mouse uh-huh. because then Disney it, it's like Mickey Mouse brings Scott Lang back like and then you have like the full on meta Disney Marvel connection yes nice. <laughs> that's true didn't someone on that show had mentioned they thought it was Ratatouille or something uh, which is I don't, I'm not sure if that's even in the Disney uh, franchise but um, but yeah that was I've been I've been making that joke with my daughter ever since I listened to that because yeah it was very funny um and so this is also one of those movies and the Vox podcast did a great job of going into detail here that gives you an array of obligatory hot takes that you have to have about certain elements of it. <laughs> and I just want to kind of get those out of the way. You know how on the Wheel of Fortune, they used to during the final the round everyone would just choose R-S-T-L-N-E. And then, um, and so finally they just gave you, all right, we'll give you R-S-T-L-N-E. Give us some new letters, right, for the final round. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I want to do that here. Let's just get the hot takes out of the uh, out of the way here. Uh, and so the girl power scene in the final battle, the where the uh, alignment of uh, all the kind of female characters that have been imported into this Marvel Cinematic Universe um, is a topic of conversation. Some people really loved it and found it empowering. Um, Nathan, I think in the notes you wrote it, is it ha- heavy handed pandering? Is it a promise for the MCU's future? Which I think is what Wayne Wise said on the Vox podcast. What were your guys' thoughts on that, that lineup? Uh, I saw it less as pandering because that would be too obvious and more as an apologetic. Okay. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I know that this is a, a fraction of their viewing audience, but there is a fraction of the viewing audience that tends to be very vocal on social media that's been complaining for the last 10 years that there are no women superheroes in the MCU. Mm. And so, you know, for seven minutes, they just trot out, you know, 72 different women superheroes <laughs> and have each of them punch Thanos once. Yeah. And, you know, I, 
<laughs> As if to say, you mean other than these 72, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Matt, what did you think about that one? Uh, because I know that there's been some talk for a while about maybe introducing A-Force, which was this all-female superhero group in the comics. Like, part of me wondered if it was sort of indicating that that was a potential future movie. Um, like, that's where my, I was like, oh, it's A-Force. They have token A-Force happening. That's great. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, it was obviously very fan servicey and, um, but it was a fan serviciness. I think, again, I feel like I'm copying what Mab said, but I, I, I liked it. Um, even if I thought, um, you know, like, yeah, it's a little pandery, but, <laughs> but you know, it, it is a, like, okay, all these female characters are here. Although you do end up with like the Captain Marvel problem of how powerful she is. And like, she probably really didn't need help. Yeah. Um, she's but, just but flying it, through a spaceship and all of a sudden she needs, you know, Siri to, or Suri to, uh, <laughs> to, uh, yeah. yeah. And it's still a nice shot. I mean, it, it just calls to mind Infinity War when Scarlet Witch has been knocked down and Black Widow and Okoye show up and it's like she's not alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, in some ways it mirrors that moment. But yeah, I, I would say a little pandery, but I'm hoping it's also indicative of a future A-Force movie. Yeah, I think the worst thing I can say about it is that it's maybe kind of claiming credit where none is due. I, I think that um, the the universe as it's unfolded on screen has been heavily male, right? Uh, almost exclusively. And the women have served very kind of rather marginally mar- marginal roles until Captain Marvel. And, and so I think it, it's sort of like trying to claim a little bit more credit than maybe they've earned. But um, I didn't have any kind of um, problem with it being posturing or, or, or anything like that. I, and, and if you think about it as gesturing towards something that is to come, I think it's actually kind of exciting. And so, yeah, I, I think it was pretty cool. So, um, overall. I, I agree. I, and I think, um, I, if it's a nod to a force, then I think it's, it's, it's potentially really cool. If it's just sort of like feminism as girl power, um, which is something like sh- a show like Supergirl falls into a bit, especially in its first season, mm. where it's like the producers don't really know what feminism is. Um, they assume feminism is like, yay, girl power. And yeah. um, that's not that's not feminism. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, I, I totally agree. Yeah. I think it's one of those things that a lot of particular YouTube channels We'll go on and on <laughs> about that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, I thought it was a really nice scene in the movie and a great way to emphasize something that maybe has been there all, the whole time and we just haven't noticed it um, because it hasn't been given its front and center due at this point. Um, the second. Well, oh, oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say on, on that point, Danny, uh, this is this is weird. My camera's not working. So Danny can't see when I'm like my body <laughs> language is turning into He's like I'm wildly gesticulating. Yes. Um, <laughs> I think uh, in terms of female representation in the MCU, um, I do wonder uh, because that on the one hand you have that scene and it's like, yay, celebration of all these female characters who are all in one scene and not a male is to be found. Um, On the other hand, I I do wonder about uh, female representation in these past two movies, particularly when it comes to the soul stone. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I've been wanting to make this joke for the past three weeks, ever since like they went to get the soul stone and it became obvious that one of them would die. Yeah. Um, In my mind, I was like, Oh man, the soul stone, 
where strong female characters go to die. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's very ominous. And and the two strongest, right? The two kind of most well-rounded and best written characters, um, female characters, both suffer their ends retrieving the soul stone for a man, right? And so um, that is one of my um, one of my hot takes that I want to get to in a minute. I think it actually leads to other kind of bigger, maybe theological questions. So I want to kind of hold that one off to the end. But um, the second hot take that everyone has to have an opinion on is Fat Thor. Um, did you guys have any, uh, any opinion? I had not heard until the, the Vox podcast, the accusations of fat shaming, and it didn't even occur to me. And me as a, you know, a, a chubby person myself, you think I'd be sensitive to that kind of thing. Um, did you guys have any sort of uh, opinions about chubby Thor, Lebowski Thor? I liked yeah. it. Yeah. I, I didn't really have an opinion either way. I, so I, I, I wasn't even aware until you just brought up. <laughs> but you know, people were, I, I can't say been out of shape cause that contains out of shape, but like, you know, I, <laughs> the, the people were uh, offended by that. All of our metaphors have failed. Um, all, yeah. all I know is when I've gone through an existential crisis where I feel like all is lost and my sense of purpose is gone. Um, I've, when, whenever I've had that moment in life of feeling that lack of purpose and sense of failure, yeah, sure. I gained 30 pounds. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Like that's when I went from being like a size 34 to pushing up on a size 38. Totally. I get it. Yeah. And, and I wonder if some of the, some of the discomfort was that it was just kind of played for an extended amount of cheap laughs. Uh, and, and so I don't, I don't know. I, I didn't have any kind of real issue with it. Uh, in fact, I think it actually, as we start talking about character arcs in a few minutes here, um, I, I want to talk a little bit about Thor's character and how it relates to um, infinity war. I think there's something kind of interesting going on there. And in that way, I think his shape actually um, works with that kind of uh, uh, character development there. Um, yeah, and- honestly, my favorite part of the new Asgard sequence is the fact that uh, uh, Korg and Meek have been spending five years playing Fortnite. <laughs> and being bullied by I, like teenagers. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess maybe that's because I have a teenage son at home. But I, <laughs> that, that was my favorite bit. <laughs> yeah, it, it did open up a lot of uh, like comic um, possibilities there. Um, another one that people have kind of mixed feelings about is Professor Hulk. Uh, and, and I again, that, I want to talk more about it when we get to the, the character arc. I, I actually think it's kind of interesting. Um, I, was it a little anticlimactic for you or, or what, what did you guys make of, of Professor Hulk? Well, I mean, I remember reading Infinity Gauntlet back in the early 90s. So, I mean, uh, Bruce Banner Hulk was a character. He wasn't nearly as friendly and cuddly as, you know, Mark Ruffalo Hulk. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I, I thought it was a fun callback to that. So, uh, once again, I mean, I really didn't mind. I love the fact that he was doing, you know, autographs and selfies with te- with kids. <laughs> uh, you know, like, like I said, it was, it was kind of like Fortnite Thor. I, I just kind of enjoyed the comic bit. Yeah. Matt, do you have anything on that one? Um, I think there's, in some ways, this has been set up since uh, Incredible Hulk with Ed Norton. Mm. Uh, there's a line that's sort of a blink and you miss it if you haven't really gone back and looked at that movie's relevance to the whole MCU. But there's a moment where um, 
what's her face? Uh, she played Betty Raw, Liv Tyler. Mm-hmm. Uh, her character makes this comment um, about how, you know, maybe it's you inside of there. You're just being overwhelmed by all the noise. Mm. Um, mm. And so there's this potential laid out even then that there can be some sort of reconciliation between Bruce Banner and the Hulk persona that uh, Bruce can allow his persona to sort of take reign in the Hulk's body in some way, that there can be some sort of Professor Hulk-style reconciliation. So so I was looking for something like this to happen because I think um, it's... I didn't know they would they would do it this way. Um, I didn't know, like, it would take place off-screen and then we'd stumble upon it in the five-year time gap. Yeah. Um, but I, I kind of saw... I feel like there are some indications early on that this is going to happen. And I like what they did with that character. Actually, my frustration with it is the reveal. Again, I think it, Marvel has this way. I saw a video somewhere on, I don't know if it was YouTube or if it was a Vox video or something. Um, it's been so long. I'll never find it again, but it was kind of criticizing the cinematic Marvel cinematic universes, style of undercutting serious moments with with jokes and they they refer to it as bathos mm. there's sort of a, mm-hmm. a, a a technical rhetorical or you know theatrical term for it and and so and i think that it's almost an irresistible impulse um and i think this is what would have made that first 30 minutes better had you seen that development and how that had something to do with um Bruce Banner and and uh, Scarlet Witch or not, uh, I'm sorry Black Widows um, falling apart uh, that seemed to be building mm-hmm. towards a, some sort of relationship in uh, Age of Ultron. It just sort of they just kind of dropped that question and we see them both kind of or especially Black Widow kind of isolated and lonely and having that as the thing that pulls them apart. I, I think seeing some of that developed would have been. Um, a lost opportunity that they sacrificed just to make a quick visual joke um, and spring it on the audience out of nowhere. Right. And so mm-hmm. um, I, I felt like that was uh, the only thing bad I can say about it. I really do like the character actually. And I, I, I like um, the way he was played uh, in general. So um, I think I saw, Oh, sorry. Dave. No, no, go ahead. Um, I, I think I saw uh, either an interview with the Rousseau's or with the writers. Um, I think it's Marcus and McFeely talking about how they actually had a montage Mm. scene that they thought about putting in that kind of showed like how the Hulk became like the world's greatest hero Mm -hmm. in that five year time gap and became the most beloved hero. Cause that's what's sort of in the background of his character there. Yeah. Yeah. You see it with those kids that come up and ask for an autograph, right? Yeah. But they, they decided to go for the visual gag with Ant-Man instead. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Um, Exactly. And that that's the problem there. And so um, the the last one, and I think it really deserves more uh, time is Black Widow's um, offering herself up as a uh, as a Ah. sacrifice. Right. Um, For the soul stone. And a lot of people find that to be really offensive. And and again, the Vox podcast did a really great job of of talking about that with regards uh, kind of relating it to a problem that was you know, perceived by many in age of Ultron where she considers herself a monster because she can't have kids. Right. And, and whether that line meant something more than that, I mean, that's what the line said. And so, um, I, I think that there's people are connecting that with this general, um, mistreatment of black widow's character. And so, um, I, 
I, I want to save her death, but do you guys have any kind of initial thoughts on that? I, I can think of one really good reason it's her and not and not Hawkeye. But um, do you guys have any thoughts on this? Yeah, a couple occurred to me. First of all, I mean, I when I watched Age of Ultron, I mean, I took it as because she has been made a monster, this assassin figure. It's good that she can't have kids. Okay. So I saw I, I saw oh. the line of causation traveling the other way. I realized that a lot of people saw it traveling the way that you just narrated. Yeah. So it's it's interesting. I mean, I I, I only ever saw Age of Ultron once, so oh, I, I mean, I, I won't I won't speak on it authoritatively. I I will say that I mean, this is a scene that Disney has worn out over the last several years. Yeah, you mentioned uh, that, this. <laughs> this is, that this is the end of Frozen, the end of Big Hero Six, the middle point of Inside Out. I mean, it is. You know, because of dilemma that has arisen, character gives up life for other character and other character goes on to save the day. Uh, and again, I mean, you know, I don't think it's bad storytelling necessarily. I do think that Disney has worn it out. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely harkens back to, you know, the classic, you know, Christological, you know, sort of um, sacrifice motif that you see all throughout lots of literature. Um, you, Which, you are obviously much more... Um, versed in Disney than I am because I was unaware of any of those other other examples. But I'll take your word. I, for I it. actually go with my kids to Disney movies, Danny. <laughs> I try to avoid that when I can, but uh, yeah. Although I have liked all the ones I've seen, I will say that, and I have seen all those, and I like them except Frozen. I haven't seen, but um, Matthew, go ahead. Uh, yeah, just in terms of the Christological motif of sacrifice, uh, this is actually something uh, that stirred up a conversation on my blog regarding this post on feminine images of Christ and pop culture. Oh, right. That was a great post. Yeah. That, that when we use the language of sacrifice, um, in relation to Christology, and then we bring in, uh, the examples of women embracing this aspect of Christ example, like there are certain problems with it. Like anytime you talk about kenosis or self giving and sacrifice and Christ and women, there's this natural thing in terms of how women, like in terms of cultural expectations of women and how women have been socialized, that they're naturally going to be more self-sacrificial on behalf of others, mm. particularly their families. And so it actually creates a little bit of a, a problem. There's a feminist critique there about using the language of, sac of Christ's sacrifice and um, relating women to that because they're already being sacrificed they're already being sacrificial and are expected to be sacrificial according to patriarchal norms yeah and so when you talk about uh christ's sacrificial living and then female sacrificial living uh there's a little bit of a problem there only because um it kind of doesn't take into the uh, it doesn't take into account the fact that women are being expected to be sacrificial by the larger culture. Yeah. And that plays and, and, itself. And so with, Go ahead. So, Oh, sorry. So Go ahead, Matthew, you do take it. So with black widow, um, you have her sacrifice and I think it needed to be black widow. I, I, I think it, I think it makes sense. Um, st from a storytelling perspective, it doesn't take the sting out of it that, um, you know, that all the issues of representation that go in here, it is a woman sacrificing herself for a man and a man's greater good. And the universe is greater good ultimately. But um, but yeah, I think that that um, bringing in the Christological dimension of her sacrifice raises a, uh, a feminist critique of how Christological sacrifice gets a 
applied to women's lives. No, that's a good point. Um, and it, actually, I mean, if you a very simple and daily example of what you're talking about is happens in academia all the time on committees. Uh, it's always women who have to take minutes, right? <laughs> not always, maybe not always, right? But that is like by and large that sort of um, task gets deferred to women, right? Um, the very yeah. menial, horrible task. Uh, and so that's something that um, that's just a kind of a, a little way in which that plays out day to day. And on the level of sort of grand narratives, you're right. That article that you posted was a really great um, example of, of, of uh, tearing that apart. Um, for me, I think the, the reason it made sense for the story was mostly for balance and, and having, um, and I'm having to spoil, my wife is in the room and she's not seen the movie, so she's going to have to put up with some spoilers, but, uh, but having the, um, uh, the sacrifice of Tony Stark sacrificing his newfound him, his himself for his newfound family survival at the end of the movie. Um, I think having Hawkeye do the same thing when he's the person who's been established would have been like just weirdly asymmetrical and imbalanced. And so I think having Hawkeye reunited with his family at the end is almost a necessary follow up to Tony Stark's um, goodbye to his family through his little hologram thing that he does. And so I think just for pure storytelling, it would have been kind of weird and clunky <laughs> to, to separate yeah. two families and, and just asymmetrical. Maybe I'm just too, uh, too rational a thinker. I don't know, but yeah, I agree with you. Um, and then there is one thing that the folks at the Vox, Vox podcast brought up on there as, as well. The, the mechanics don't seem to work and, and maybe you can defend this for me, but when Thanos did it, he had to sacrifice something to gain the stone himself, right? Um, it wasn't like someone could do it for him. And, and, and so here it seems to change the rules a little bit uh, when you can volunteer for that position. Uh, and, and and I think that's actually an interesting question. What, what did you guys, do you guys have an opinion on that? Oh, even Red Skull can't overcome the laws of Disney. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's as simple as that. So it's, it's sort of sloppy storytelling. Um, uh, and I don't know. Yeah. And so, I mean, the other thing, yeah, it just doesn't, uh, it's hard to reconcile how that works with the rules that we've been given so far. Uh, and, They're the pirates rules. Yes. <laughs> They're more like guidelines. <laughs> yes. Well, and, and I want to talk more about the, the idea of sacrifice with that caveat that, that Matthew, you just kind of gave us about how, when you apply this to, uh, to women, it, it, it brings up several kind of troubling things, but, um, there were several character arcs. Uh, I want to, here's the, for the listener, a couple of topics I want to hit on. The first thing is character arcs that have been kind of resolved over the course of these 22 movies. And then I want to talk a little bit about um, time travel. <laughs> and I want to talk a little bit about the uh, kind of theological, maybe political underlying structures of this movie and questions that are raised by it. But let's start with the characters themselves. Um, is there a particular character arc that you want to, uh, to kind of um, unpack for us? Um, I'll start with Nathan. Uh, sure. I mean, you know, one of them that uh, struck me is uh, Tony Stark's getting into a position where audiences are actually weeping for him when he dies. Yeah. Uh, and I bring this up because in 2012, uh, of course, seven years have passed. So, I mean, all of us know that he doesn't die at the end of Avengers Earth, Earth's Mightiest Heroes. 
but he could have, mm-hmm. right? I mean, his, uh, you know, his Hulkish resuscitation uh, <laughs> was not a necessary turn in the plot, right? Had he died there, he would have died as a heroic figure. It would have been a military movie trope where, you know, Sarge dies so that the grunts yeah. live. You know, it would have been, you know, uh, people I think would have, you know, raised their chins and walked out with pride, but they wouldn't have wept the way that they did with this. And I think that, you know, part of what's going on there is that in Infinity War, and of course here in Endgame, uh, he becomes a father himself. And we'll talk about, you know, his uh, time travel and his encounter with his own father in an alternate timeline. But, uh, you know, the fact of the matter is, I mean, you know, in the theater where I watched it both times, I mean, the tears didn't start when everyone knew he was going to die. Uh, the tears start when Pepper Potts says, uh, we're going to be okay. You can rest now. Yeah. And I mean, what brings the tears, I think, is just the anxiety that, you know, comes with that. That, you know, if something happens to me, what happens to those around me? Does that make some sense? It does. And and that was one of his conditions was for bringing back everybody who's who was snapped away was don't change anything after the snap right he he's like he wanted to hold yeah. on to his family right that became something um of super importance to him which was you know selfless in a way that we hadn't seen yet uh, on some level sure so. sure um and then of course i mean his surrogate son peter parker is the reason that he does go ahead with it right i mean uh the, there's no verbal exposition of that but visually uh it's very cl- clearly his encounter with the photograph of him and Peter Parker that makes him resolved actually to act upon his discovery of, you know, whatever mathematics make the time travel possible. Yeah, that's a really good point. And we get that nice moment of reunion on the battlefield, uh, like right in the yeah. middle of the battle. They, <laughs> he gives them mm-hmm. a big hug. Right. Um, and, and that was uh, and that was kind of uh, kind of lovely, actually. So, um, mm-hmm. uh, Matthew, do you have anything to add to Tony Stark? Yeah, I love the the, and you see this again. I love. I agree that line where Pepper's like, "We're going to be okay. You can go," because basically, what drives Tony's character from Avengers forward is his worry about the next invasion. Mm-hmm. Right? It, Iron Man three ha, is largely centered around his PTSD, um, and his uh, flashbacks to uh, going through the wormhole, um. Avengers Age of Ultron, uh, Scarlet Witch taps into his fear and he sees a vision of the other invasion. The Sokovia Accords, like, again, he's dealing with the fallout from his decision that Mm -hmm. makes Ultron. Uh, Infinity War, he tells Doctor Strange, Thanos has been living in my head for the past six years. Um, So, like, that idea of, like, that's been all that's on his mind is how do I keep this from happening next time? And the fact that Pepper's able to he he's able to take out Thanos for good with the snap. And he's able to then after that, you know, Pepper's able to tell him, like, you've done it. Like the thing you were afraid of, the return of Thanos' forces, like, you're okay, you can go now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I will say just as a side note that the obsession with the snap motion did bother me. Okay. <laughs> uh, and again, it's because, you know, in the nineties with, you know, Infinity Gauntlet, Infinity War, Infinity Crusade possession of the gauntlet gives the wearer a certain godlike capacity 
Uh, and the fact that in the movies, nothing ever happens unless you actually snap your fingers. <laughs> you know, that, that that's supposed to be a hyperbolic gesture in 1991. It becomes a... a a necessary trigger in 2018-19. Yeah. <laughs> and that just bothers me. And it just well, doesn't seem like it doesn't seem, you know, versatile or dexterous enough to actually make let you snap a finger with that metal gauntlet, right? No, well, there's that, but then there's also, I mean, in 1991 what's what's particularly horrifying about the moment when Nebula gets the Infinity Gauntlet is that she can verbally reverse everything that Thanos did. And then later on, she can make things happen simply by thinking them. Mm. So again, you know, I cinematically, I could make a very weak case for why you want the snap to have to happen every time. But as far as storytelling goes, the comic books of the 90s just did a much better job of wrestling with what happens when a mortal being gets divine power. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. I, I was even watching Infinity War the other night. Because I've been going back and watching some of these movies, and uh, now seeing Endgame, it's actually really fun to go back and watch them because those movies, even Age of Ultron, takes on a greater weight now. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you see, uh, like when uh, Gamora makes this comment where she's like, uh, he's, she, she's like, all I've, all as long as I've known him, all he's ever wanted to do is destroy half of life. If he gets all six stones, he can do it with the snap of his fingers like this. And I'm like, oh, she's using that as an analogy. Yeah. <laughs> and then it becomes this literal thing you have to do every time. Hold his right, fingers. Which just bugs yeah. the snot out of me. It really does. <laughs> Hold the thumb. Yes. Um, yeah, that, that's actually a really good point. It becomes this sort of literal like act that takes on more importance than it should. Um, and, and then, of course, Tony is able to hold it long enough in his armor to, to do it. Right. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I don't have anything else to add to, to the sacrifice of Tony at the end. I think it kind of had to happen. I, I think this series had to happen, had to end with both Tony and Captain America being removed from the, from the future timeline. Right. And, and I think that, um, it did a perfect job in both cases. I think it had to be Tony who died. And I think giving cap his ending, uh, and maybe we could go there next. What did you guys think of, of captain America's, um, kind of final move? Uh, Matthew, you want to start with this one? Uh, yeah, I, I wish I had made like made a bet with friends because I did have the like once time travel got introduced in my head. I was like, this is going to end with him getting his dance with Peggy somehow. <laughs> That's how this is going to end. He's going to get his dance with Peggy. Like it was either he'll go out in a blaze of glory and he'll be like, the first Avenger has fallen and it rallies the troops and like, or Tony and him that I thought maybe that would like bring Tony and him back or bring Tony to his senses and end their conflict. But they kind of handled that kind of anticlimactically like hey i'm sick of being angry you sick of being angry i'm totally sick of being angry all right here's your shield what's your mom's name i'm just kidding yeah um. <laughs> yeah martha dude mine too. um yeah so i i like the dance with peggy i'm not sure about all the time traveling's uh schematics of how that works i have some thoughts on the time travel stuff that i'll save for time travel yeah def- that needs I, its own section <laughs> but but if i had um an ideal ending for Cap. It was for him to end up uh, in his last dance, to have that dance with Peggy finally, to be able to go home and be able to live in a world without a war to fight, um, which was always like 
Ultron and everyone else's. Uh, that's always been Captain America's problem is he needs the fight. Um, Ultron pointed that out. You see uh, Tony sort of giving him grief about that. Um, like he doesn't know what to what to do if he's not fighting um, because he 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 wanted to go home. He wanted to make a life with Peggy and was unable to. And so that's his way of coping. Yeah. And you kind of had a sense something was brewing when they did that kind of uh, whatever alternative time travel do over to go back to 1970 or whatever it was. And uh, and he saw Peggy uh, in the office and he has this sort of look of profound loss uh, on on his face as he sort of sees the woman, you know, what 25 years after he disappears um that could have should have been his wife right and so um you knew something like that was brewing and i thought just it was very brave to give captain america a happy ending i think it would have been really easy and especially in this era of like game of thrones where everything has to end in bloodshed and death right um and, and i think that um to give him a happy ending was was just the perfect thing and i have to say when that hammer starts flying through the air and we see it land in, in Captain America's hand. I have not reacted that exuberantly at a movie in a long time. <laughs> that was like one of the, <laughs> I was like, I was actually clapping at the, in the theater with a lot of other people at that moment. And I thought it was just the coolest thing. And so, um, yeah, I thought that that was, um, what they did with Captain America's character, I thought was just a perfect ending. And I think the same thing goes with Tony Stark's character. And I think one of them, obviously, they both have to be gone. And I think Tony yeah. had to die. I think, I mean, he has so many sins that he has to pay for ultimately. And I think that um, him, his taking on the final like sacrifice of his body to, to enact the, the last snap is, uh, is mm -hmm. what had to happen. And so um, I think that those were really kind of masterfully um, handled for, for my, for my taste at least. So, um, and, and there are many other characters. Um, I, I'll let you guys sort of um, pick and choose where we go to. I do want to talk about Thor and I do want to talk about Nebula. Let me, can I talk about Nebula and then I'll let yeah, you yeah. guys um, talk about some other ones. I really found her to be almost the heart and soul of almost the whole franchise by the end of this um, movie. I think that it's kind of remarkable the way they've developed her from her first appearance in guardians of the galaxy. I would have never guessed that she would have such a pivotal kind of not just symbolic, but like emotional uh, role to play in the weight of these movies. And pr when she has to like literally kill her old self uh, to save Gamora um, in this movie, I just, uh, I found that to be a really kind of, I, I know that it, some people think of it as violent or something like that, but, um, and, and I can see like a I can probably I can see a pretty strong feminist critique of that move. But I, I for me personally, I had to do something like that. I mean, I had to like kind of symbolically kill off the old me in order to become a better version of myself. Right. Um, and she sort of has to literally do this uh, in order to save not just herself, but everybody else. And, and, and I think that it was just a really kind of powerful moment that I couldn't have foreseen three movies ago. I thought, I thought it was just really remarkable what they did with her character. Any thoughts? Am I the only person who had a reaction to Nebula? <laughs> no, that, that's a good point. She, she, she was, I mean, even in infinity gauntlet, I think, and Nathan, you can back me up on this. Uh, she's the one who reverses Thanos' stuff to begin with. Like she plays a very yeah, large yeah. role. And so it makes sense that she would, but I think, you know, you have this, what was basically an obscure Marvel character until about, you know, five years ago, who, yeah, plays a, a very big part 
a very I mean, her character is the central plot device that allows Thanos to come from the past into the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And actually it just occurred to me going back to 1991 again. Sorry, I keep doing this. No, but, that's uh, one reason I'm glad you're well, here. When, you love that. So when much, when yeah. Nebula gets the gauntlet, it just now occurs to me that her reversal of Thanos's killing of half the universe. Uh, she actually echoes Genesis one. She said with the, with the exception that I retain the infinity gauntlet, let all things be, as they were 90 days ago. Mm. So, I mean, I just very, very biblical echo there. So I, I was kind of expecting and hoping that Nebula would get the gauntlet. Uh, but I understand why in this version of the story, she couldn't. Right. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I do think that, uh, you know, her turn, you know, to become a heroic figure is, is definitely interesting. Yeah, and I think, I mean, we can talk about Tony's development, moral development. I don't think anybody had the moral development of of Nebula. And it comes out of being brought against her will initially into community with people, right? And she has to kind of, and that act of being drug into the community of the Guardians of the Galaxy, um, where she sees people being sacrificial for each other and where she sees um, folks, uh, you know, um, like living the good and the bad with each other. Um, she's then kind of able to um, basically develop as a person. And I, and I think that that is just kind of a remarkable thing. And, and it's also for me, her going back into the past, she's kind of got this uh, wireless link to her other, to her other past self when they're in the same timeline. Um, and so um, that's how Thanos finds out what's going on is that, Nebula's computer is talking to itself in, in two different forms. And so he understands, he figures out what's going on eventually. But, and it's just something, I don't know, if I'm looking like a sermon illustration or something like that for this, uh, which I don't preach, thank God. But, um, but the, uh, the idea of like our old selves still kind of haunting who we've become and who we are trying to become, right? And they can still sort of drag us down. Um, I, I just think there's something really profound about what they did with Nebula's character. And, and, and I, I just thought it was just kind of beautiful in a lot of ways too. Um, uh, I agree. I, I was afraid of, I was afraid because I, I wanted to super affirm you, but I was like, that's really on the nose. Do I want to be like, yeah, totally bro. <laughs> New self in Christ. Woo! <laughs> but, but yeah, no, I agree with you and uh, you should write a blog about it. <laughs> Yes, okay. and, and I also think literarily, and I'm 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 still not sure what to do with this. I also saw the movie a couple times. Uh, the fact that Thanos, Alt Thanos, gets his catchphrase from his main timeline dead counterpart. Yes, there's something to that, and I don't know what to do with it. Uh, I'm inevitable, right? Yeah. The, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he like the worst part of himself, kind of, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's it's really uh-huh. yeah. It's it's really interesting to see, and that's honestly and it's a, and it's a completely different context, right? Because when he says it in the main timeline, it is the end of his story. He knows he's about to die. Yeah. But you know his power to kill is now inevitable because there are no more stones, right? When his alternate timeline self says it he is about to seize the stones or he thinks he has just seized the stones. Yeah. There is something that's more kind of noble about Thanos and infinity war than the alt Thanos, as you described him in this movie. Like uh-huh. he, he just, just seems like a mad butcher in this movie without any kind of, I mean, he's like crazy, but he, 
you know, dude, at least there's an ethos, right? You know, <laughs> so, you know <laughs> to quote Lebowski again, right? Um, yeah. There's something at least moral motivating what he's doing. I mean, it's sort of, I mean, he's got some kind of ethics behind what he's doing in Infinity War. Here, like, he loses all of that. Um, and he kind of shortcuts, oh, to, so? shortcuts to the, I didn't find his character to be at all sympathetic in the ways that I was surprised at him being in infinity war. I found, I was surprised at how sympathetic okay, interesting, because the, the way that I read him, Danny, and, uh, and again, maybe I'm just uh, too much of a fanboy on this count, but I mean, I saw alt Thanos as all of, the, all of Thanos's ideology, but with a sense of historical inevitability. Okay. So in other words, you know, it's not that he is striving for something that might not happen but he is now walking into the destiny that he knows he is going to carry forth. Yeah. And I could see that. And so, I mean, I, I think that it is a new flavor of madness to be sure. Yeah. But I think the ideology is still part of that. And, and I guess because we didn't see him in this movie, make any personal sacrifice or, yeah. you know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? We didn't see the backstory where he seems to have a weird, a weirdly real affection for Gamora um, as a child. Right. Yeah. And so um, mm-hmm. maybe because all that's missing from this, alt Thanos um, I did feel it when he, in his opening death scene for original Thanos right and so I did I did yeah. feel a little sympathy for him in that moment right and so I, yeah maybe you're right uh, the way you kind of describe it about this sense of inevitability is what kind of makes him less tasteful uh, even D- than, Dan- more so. so Danny yeah Danny you're saying he went full Daenerys Targaryen on <laughs> well I've never <laughs> I don't watch the Game of Thrones, but I know what's going on in that show, and and yes, I think that that's uh, I think that's totally what's going on there. He went <laughs> he went full Danny, yeah, <laughs> and and yeah. Uh, I wish I had watched that show because I have some thoughts on it. Um, and we talk a little bit about Thanos in in the show that's going to come out next week. I interviewed Joshua Wise about um, like like Armageddon and eschatology in um, pop culture. And and we sort of do talk Mm -hmm. about um, his garden scene at the beginning. Um, If you want to tune in next week uh, and listen to that one, I think you'll enjoy, you'll enjoy that show anyway. Josh wise was actually in the past in an alternate timeline. Yes, (laughs) exactly. Right. Um, And so, um, yeah, so we were talking about Gamora and we got to Thanos there. Um, Any other, um, character arcs that you think are notable that we should talk about um matthew I, I'm, I'm just oh, go ahead i'm just gonna go ahead and, and, and ask you to to uh make a case for me for the thor visit to his mother i love because that. i found i i found that utterly unsatisfying i loved that, it i mean what what makes thor and and really this is what makes captain america and thor so good for tony stark is that they give him a sense that there are things beyond himself that compel him to be a certain kind of being. Yeah. And I feel like Thor's mother takes that away. She replaces all of that with just, you know, you do you. I think that it, when you look at what he became in infinity war, he is like the ultimate hero by the end of that movie, after mm-hmm. he gets a uh, Stormbreaker uh, to replace Mjolnir, the, um, and he, surges into battle. I mean, he could just summon lightning at will. I mean, he's like the ultimate image of what his father wanted him to be. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. he perfectly Mm -hmm. became that Thor. Right. Um, and even so he failed. 
right? That, uh, that, that as good as he could have been in his father's imagination. I mean, he had surpassed Odin at that point in terms of power and authority and goodness mm-hmm. and morals mm-hmm. and everything, right? Um, um, and even that fails. And so he has to go back to the mother um, to be freed from those kinds of, I guess, patriarchal sort of expectations about oneself um, and just um, create a new self um, without any kind of ultimate teleological sort of um, expectation waiting at the end, right? Um, he abdicates the throne to Valkyrie, right? Um, everything that his father wanted him to be, he became, and he became as successfully as he possibly could have become, and it still wasn't enough to save the universe, right? And so um, the only thing to do at that point is an act of perpetual self-creation, and, and his mother, I think, um, gives him the, the the motivation to do that. And, and I, I thought it was... I thought it was great. Um, I, I loved what they did with that character, uh, and and I loved how, I, th- I loved how Thor, excuse me, Odin's ideology, Od- Odin's power, has a particular limit, right? I mean that that ideology of power and authority can only go so far, and you have to move beyond it somehow. And we get to watch Thor move beyond it a little bit and and join this ragtag Asgardians of the galaxy uh, in in a future movie. And I, I'm really looking forward to it. I loved it. I, I I thought it was really cool, and it was great to see Rene Russo actually have a a couple actual scenes. So um, yeah. <laughs> so, um, but Matthew, what do you think? Uh, about Thor specifically, yeah, yeah, no, I like this. I mean, I I was growing up, I was always close to my mom, so like, you know, even even the noblest of us must return to our mother for encouragement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> no, I I dug it. I thought it was good. Um, you know, you don't see a lot about his relationship to his mother. You only see his relationship to his father really emphasized. Although in the Dark World. Him and Loki both, you know, are sad about it, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought, yeah, no, I, I, I really dug the whole, like, you know, I'm from the future, or I'm not from the future. I lied. I'm totally from the future. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And then, you know, just needing that encouragement, like, you know, it's it's nice to have someone remind you of who you are. Um, which, speaking of other, uh, but on on. I, I want to bring up another character whose arc um, I find kind of interesting here, um, only because of how prom- if anything, I'm not sure how much they change, but they become fairly prominent. Is Rocket Raccoon? Yeah. So, so let's let's okay. talk about let's talk about the fact that um, for the longest time, the DC like DC was like the world's not ready for a Wonder Woman movie. Yeah. And then like in in one of the biggest movies of all time now, Avengers Endgame. Rocket Raccoon is one of the bi- appears the most is one of the most prominent characters in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like, let's talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not sure there's anything really to say other than, wow, did anyone else notice how weird this is? And now Wonder Woman's <laughs> doing great. But um, the fact that Rocket Raccoon, you know, this talking raccoon and this talking tree became these darlings um, who are in some of the biggest movies of all time, Infinity War and Endgame. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I mean it's a great characterization. It's 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 very funny, and I mean we've seen Rocket lose so much over the course of his movies that I think he was able to kind of portray the emotional weight of the post snap world in ways that 
other people haven't. We I mean, we know that people have lost people, right? But Rocket always talks about everybody's lost people, right? And, and so like he's, mm. he's he's got the I mean he's sort of set up to thrive in, in, in this world, right? And and yeah, and you're right though. It is if you told me seven years ago that. A, you know, a, a three foot tall ra- raccoon would have been one of the greatest action stars in, in, in cinema. It would have been hard to believe. Sure. Um, um, anything more on that one? Um, another thing I find not character arcs, but a few interesting callbacks. Um, one of which is if you ever saw Ant-Man and the Wasp, mm-hmm. there's this line where, ant-man tells wasp like well cap needed me and she's like oh he's cap now <laughs> yeah. Um, and, <laughs> yeah and there's this moment in the end game final scene when they're trying to get to the other time machine to set it up in the final battle and wasp goes we're on it cap and the <laughs> two of them look at each other briefly before they shrink down and fly away and i'm like that's a callback. Yeah. Like, I don't oh, yeah, care what yeah. anyone tells me. That's definitely. Oh, that's absolutely a callback. And this movie's full of them, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the whole, like, you're taking all the stupid with you. I mean, that's like a refer- reference. The I can do this all day line. I mean, this, <laughs> this movie is, in some ways, it's like a grand tour of all the other movies. Uh, it, it, it was, oh, sure. Particularly sure. when they go back in time to uh, to revisit those old sets from and we see the same scenes from different angles. Um, and so, yeah, I think that the callback is a really. I don't know, just kind of almost heartwarming. It's more than just funny. It's like heartwarming <laughs> to, to revisit. Oh, sure. I mean, what, what it reminds me of, and I'm going to run the risk here of saying something nice about prequels. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, the opening starfighter scene in uh, episode three, Star Wars. Okay. Where they do the entire six minute starfighter scene entirely in lines from the starfighter scenes from the other five movies. Okay. I mean, that's what it reminded me of. Yeah. I, I could see that actually. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, and yeah, there's something you're speaking to fandom then, right? And you're giving. Oh little, yeah, it's, it's totally fan service. Yeah. yeah, Easter eggs for people who will appreciate them, right? As is the Stan Lee <laughs> cameo and and that kind of thing. And, mm-hmm. and and apparently this is the last one um, that we'll see. Um, oh. it's, that's what I heard. And so um, yeah. Um, and so I with with the callback, Danny. Yeah. Uh, just just one more thought about that. I had a friend who actually just had watched Iron Man and Age of Ultron the day before seeing the movie. Okay. So, like, for Tony Stark to have said, I am Iron Man. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, to see Cap get the hammer. Yeah. Th- this mm. this is why I'm saying Age of Ultron, like, in hindsight, I appreciate it way more than I ever have. <laughs> I really um, like that movie. I've seen that one, like, five or six times. I really like Age of Ultron. I don't know why. I think James Spader is... I, I just smile when I hear him talk. And so um, I don't know, but um, I really like uh, Age of Ultron. And so, but, and, and yeah, this, the, Tony's reference about building a suit of armor around the world, right? I mean, that comes yeah. out of that movie. And so, yeah, there's all sorts of um, um, connective tissue to the, uh, to the movies that have existed. Um, and I have to apologize if you're listening. I am recording from home. And of course, today, um, out of all the days in the year, the sewer project in, in town is uh, right in front of my house and um, at this very hour. So because, of course, that's what it would happen. And so, um, so uh, go ahead. Oh, Danny, I, I just wanted to ask. Um, I know you probably want to move on to talk about time travel and some other stuff. Um, I, I do want to talk real quickly about Bucky and Sam. I was going to ask and, you, too, because I saw that just pop up on the Google mm, Doc. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> go ahead. Um, so I. Um, <laughs> So I have some some issues here. Um, I, I want to preface it by saying I think in the MCU it makes sense for Sam to get the shield. 
Uh, that being said, when 2014 came out and Winter Soldier came out, um, it would have made way more sense for Bucky to get the shield then. And you see it prefigured when he holds the shield and mm-hmm. throws the shield. I mean, character-wise, I think it makes sense for him to get the shield because he has the strength to throw it, but that's aside. Yeah. Um, and and then that comes from this arc that Ed Brubaker did where um, the Winter Soldier basically appears as brainwashed, but then right when he gets sort of redeemed, Steve dies in Civil War, and then he becomes Captain America to honor Steve, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, there's a tragedy to that in that, you know, my buddy wanted me to be okay, and now I am okay, and now he's dead. You know what I mean? Um, and I think, they, I think they did a good job with Bucky as Cap, and I think <coughs> Bucky as Captain America is more, a bit more compelling because he is a tragic figure carrying that mantle of his fallen friend. Yeah. Um, and, and his powers and, and so, match better, yeah. And his powers match better. And so I think... Um, I think there are a lot of things about um, about Bucky becoming Captain America that would have made way more sense. Um, and I I initially felt that way about the movies, too. I, I think the thing that the movies have going for them is uh, one that we've seen Sam sort of be, you know, he does what Cap does, just slower. <laughs> yeah. older. Yeah. Um, he embodies the spirit of Steve Rogers. Um, so there's been a sense in which it makes sense for him to get the shield in that circumstance. And Bucky has basically been downplayed, like even at the end of civil war in the movies that have come since Bucky's role in cap's life, um, is a little downplayed. Like he, he, he isn't, he hasn't become the man who would even tragically wield the shield. Um, even though I think his power set is better. Yeah. And I, and I, I understand the politics of it. I hate it in the comics when they made Sam Wilson Captain America because Bucky had literally just been Captain America a few years ago. They brought Cap back and then they depowered him again. Um, and they did oh, it so okay. that they could, they could diversify their heroes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there are things about the whole making Sam Captain America that I don't like. I understand from a representational thing it, it makes sense i understand why you would want a black captain america and not another white guy um but overall like I, i've i've always i've had some issues i had definitely had issues with how they handled it in the comics um in the mcu i think it works better but um i, I don't like that there's this trajectory change from bucky being the obvious inheritor to sam because of stuff that went on in the comics if that makes sense yeah mm-hmm it does. And I know that Mav, you know, he he always loved Falcon. And so he, he doesn't want to lose Falcon, you know. <laughs> and so I, I think that that's another um, another reason uh, to. Uh, yeah, it was an odd choice. I think one thing that was interesting, if I remember, right, it's actually been a while since I've seen Civil War or not Civil War. Uh, Winter Soldier, it must have been when we first met Sam. Right. And um, he wasn't he like working with uh, vets like in some sort of counseling uh, capacity when when he first met Captain America, yeah. I believe so. Yeah, and so I mean we see Captain America, we see Steve Rogers doing that in this movie with people in kind of post snap world. He's 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 basically mm-hmm. running like men's groups, right? And so um, yeah. that is kind of a parallel between the two in terms of character outside of power. Uh, and yeah. so I mean there there are good reasons to to do the what they did. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure which direction would have been better. Yeah. 
And in the MCU, you're right. Like the the, the parallel in their characters makes makes more sense for Sam to have gotten the shield than what in the in the comics. I, I think it's other than just for the sake of having a, a black Captain America in the comics. It it makes doesn't make a lot of sense because, like I said, Bucky had literally just been Captain America. Cap comes back and then they decided that five years had been enough for Steve to come back. And so it's time to to screw up the whole um, the whole status quo again. Um, whereas in the movies, I, I will say it. I'm, I'm a little disappointed because they definitely are setting it up when he's first introduced, when Bucky's first introduced. But uh, it makes more sense overall, considering how they develop Sam's character. Yeah, yeah, in, mm-hmm. in, the, in the big picture. Um, I, I do want to talk about uh, time travel. I, and I want to talk about Black Widow and what she does at the end of this movie. I think it kind of fits with a more theological discussion. Um, and maybe it'll be a quick one because you guys have already kind of talked me out of some ideas that I had. So <laughs> on two directions, but, um, but let's get to time travel first. Um, and, and this is going to be hopefully not as long as the movie, but yeah, we're already over an hour. We need to uh, move it along here a little bit, but the, uh, I thought that this movie handled time travel better than most movies that do time travel. I, I like the way in which you don't change past events by changing or change future events by changing the past. And, and you just sort of create a multiplicity of timelines. Um, and so I thought as far as a storytelling device, I thought it worked really well. And I think Nathan, you mentioned how the movie is like, so in conversation with other time travel movies. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, that becomes a joke, but go ahead. Well, well, and again, I, and I, I forgot for a moment that uh, Scott Lang is not one of your super scientist characters. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, cause I, I, I still think of Ant-Man as uh, as Hank Pym. Uh, so I think I think of him as, you know, okay, Richard Reed, Hank Pym, Tony Stark, Bruce Banner, you know, are kind of the great minds of the yeah. Marvel comic book world, right? Uh, so I forgot that Scott Lang and not Henry Pym is Ant-Man. So when he said, we're going to keep very close to the rules of time travel, I'm like, okay, Hank Pym knows this. <laughs> and then I realize it's Scott Lang because he says, you can't talk to your former self. You can't bet on sporting <laughs> events. And I'm like, holy cow, he's quoting Back to the Future. <laughs> and then they actually make reference to, you know, uh, what, Bill and Ted, Bill Back and to the Future. <laughs> time <laughs> cop. Hot tub time machine. Yeah, yeah hot, hot tub time machine. I forgot about that one. Yeah, so. Yeah, I remember. I hard. <laughs> that, that was a whole lot of fun. Uh, again, because... That there is a subgenre, the time travel movie, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, this is a this is a film that's not going to pretend that those movies don't exist. It's going to run right at it yeah. and say we are going to joke about our own use of these tropes. Yeah, and 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 even so, and so I and I loved it. I think it makes much more logical sense uh, the way that they've they ran with it here. I, I am confused about how Steve ended up back as an old man, <laughs> but you're always going to have like, uh, you know, inconsistencies in time travel well, movies. That, that, that's the moment in uh, Austin powers too, where Mike Myers looks into the camera and says, just don't think about it too much. Love. All right. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, there, there are a few moments like that. Okay. Um, but there are also like, I think really interesting and weird um, ethical questions that come up because when Bruce Banner is talking to the ancient one on the roof of that, that, and we get the, the story of how time travel works, right? Uh, uh, basically they, they lay out the theory for us. Um, so that, you know, it's an interesting narrative device there, but she makes basically says that the people 
who are in these alternate timelines are real people, right? And so um, they don't cease to exist because you've gone and changed the past. They just exist in a different trajectory. And so there are, I know the comics make plenty of room for multiverses, right? So, but there are then, you know, who knows how many Bruce Banners and who who knows how many ancient ones and all these kind of things, right? And so right. Um, it's a really interesting moral dilemma. So when Thor, and I assume when Captain America goes back, he has the hammer to take back to Thor's old timeline. I assume that's why he has that hammer. Um, but if he doesn't, for say, <laughs> like what happens to that Thor in the dark world beyond who has no hammer, right? Before he knows he doesn't need mm-hmm. the hammer, right? I mean, what happens to the people who, uh, you know, uh, in in 1970 when he goes back and when Tony Stark goes back and takes the Tesseract and, uh, and, and, and the Pym particles and all that kind of thing, what happens to mm-hmm. that timeline? Does Howard Stark end up in a different place, right? And that's still a Howard Stark we should care about theoretically, right? And so it, there's an interesting kind of ethical dilemma about fixing our present and screwing up other people's futures in the in the in the in doing so. And I, and I I think it's fascinating. I don't know if they'll make movies about this or not, but um, mm-hmm. something occurs to me. What do you guys think about that? Well, they kind of already did with the end of the Spider Verse, right? I mean, that is the great villainy of Wilson Fisk in that movie is that he is ready, willing, and in the process of kidnapping his wife and son from a different timeline so that he doesn't have to be lonely. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I mean, it, it's interesting. I mean, I, and I realize that that's a Sony picture and this one's a Disney, but they also played in the same theaters. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, I, I think that it's an interesting hypertext at the very least. I heard an interesting fan theory that in the Nick Spider-Man movie with Mysterio, that um, Jake Gyllenhaal is actually Peter Parker from another um, from another time from another timeline uh, from another dimension. Um, I hope that's true because that would be awesome. And so <laughs> because um, because he was actually rumored to be to replace Tobey Maguire because they were having some contract issues with Tobey Maguire, and so it was, they were just going to replace him with Jake Gyllenhaal. So that would have been awesome. Um, but back to the topic at hand, uh, Matthew. Any thoughts on the time travel stuff and the ethics of it? There, there's a problem with talking about the because the question is were alternative timelines created because when uh, when Bruce Banner is talking to the ancient one there's this idea that a, an alternative time stream will be created if the powers if the power if the uh, infinity stones aren't put back in place because the infinity stones are what guide the timeline and so if you put back the stones then there's this sense of alternative timelines aren't created. And so then you end up with the question of, is it a situation? And I was talking with a friend about this the other day over lunch. Of course you were. (laughs) (laughs) Is this a situation where time is sort of, it's like an eternalistic view of time where the past is viewed in sort of a spatial way. Um, Like it's like the past is a place you can go and visit. Mm-hmm. And maybe you screw up some stuff, but you can still return to the present because it's its own sort of place. Um, and nothing follows it after you leave. Yeah, like the like it's like the Langoliers when you can go back in time and the past is still there. It's just sort of dead now, but it's still there. And then it gets eaten up by the. Mm. Did you ever read Langoliers? No, I haven't. Or see the movie? No. It's a Stephen King where basically it involves time travel. Um, 
but yeah, we were talking about whether or not time is this linear thing or whether it's uh, time is conceived of spatially. Yeah. And if it's spatial, then that means you can visit the past like any other space in the, in the universe and then leave it um, because it has its own sort of existence. And I don't know whether that gets resolved with something like a DC universe con- conception like hypertime where you have these streams that diverge but then rejoin the main timeline Mm. um but yeah i'm not quite sure about the alternative timeline thing um i just think that they've they've created in fact when professor hulk says when you return to the past that becomes your future but you don't change your own past um it, it leaves the alternative timeline versus being able to enter the past without really changing it thing i I think it i think it leaves it up in the air i think it's left as this ambiguous concept yeah and i guess the only thing that i wonder about then is so when they go back to new york and find the tesseract briefly and then because of comic events and hulk not wanting to take the stairs um they they lose the tesseract and loki in that moment right um like so for that universe of the Avengers, like the immediately following the Avengers before the shawarma meal uh, in the post credit me- <laughs> post credit sequence, like there's no more Loki going back to Asgard as a prisoner. There's no more Tesseract. Loki is off in the universe with the Tesseract, right? Um, and so I, mm-hmm. one would assume that that reality continues even though they tried to replace things um, before it happened. Um, and and Captain America fought himself, right? And lost to himself in, in that same scene. And, and so it's like, what happens to that Captain America going forward? And I just think it's, and it's a, it's a, should we treat potential ourselves as real selves? And, 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 and I guess this maybe intersects with the question of what Nebula does to her old self, right? Um, by killing her mm-hmm. old self to allow her new self to live, right? And her new community to live. And so, yeah, it's a, um, I don't know. It, it's a, I, it's messy, but really kind of fascinating. And, and I love the way they handled time travel. Yeah. Austin Powers. I'll just go back to that. <laughs> You're always going to have inconsistencies. There's no way to not do that, right? And so, um, yeah. Um, so let's kind of wrap this up with like some kind of eschatological slash theological understandings of the movie, right? And so, um, one one question that I have about the world post second snap. Okay. (laughs) So, um, and Nathan McGee, a friend of mine from work, who's been on the show before, uh, he and I were talking about this. What in five years, some people got remarried, right? Um, in five years, like, (laughs) you know, what happens when that, that spouse comes back, right? You know what I mean? And the Sadducees came to him and said, (laughs) suppose a man was married before the snap. And (laughs) 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 exactly right and so um yeah that dude the 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 russo brother who was talking about his date with that guy um like what if his what if his uh, previous partner comes back after he's on a date with the other with the new guy right and so um there's all sorts of scenarios like that i i just find the post snap world to be kind of fascinating and and just bleak Mm -hmm. right it doesn't have the 
the Edenic imagery that Thanos thinks it's going to have. Like people are just in a state of perpetual mourning. They stop playing baseball, right? The Mets stadium Mm -hmm. is is abandoned, right? And so it didn't have the effect of freeing everyone up to live more fully um, in in ways that he couldn't have expected. And so um, I I think that there's a lot of really interesting um, thinking to be done about the world post Thanos' snap and then the world post Bruce Banner snap, uh, the Hulk snap mm-hmm. when when he uh, um, when he brings everybody back. Um, I think that there's two major problems <laughs> that are created in both of those scenarios. What are you guys' thoughts on that? Go ahead, Matthew. No, no, I insist. <laughs> well, first of all, I mean it is uh, a world that I mean is precarious, right? I mean, you know. Uh, Steve Rogers, you know, makes mention of the fact that there's a pod of whales in the Hudson. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, unless there is also some mechanism in the snap that keeps people from reproducing, they're going to repopulate the earth again. And then there won't be whales in the Hudson again. Right. So, I mean, you know, in some sense, uh, five years might just not be enough time. Uh, You know, if you think about it as something analogous to the bubonic plague in Europe in the 14th century, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it took a hunk out of things, but eventually things got repopulated, right? So, uh, the, there's a, I, I think that as a mythological event, it works because, you know, it has this allegorical import of showing what happens when ultimate power gets paired with unblinking ideology. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you follow it out as this movie does, uh, you know, the implication seems to be that ultimately, whatever Thanos thought he was doing is probably going to be undone given enough time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that snap um, just seems like, you know, not inevitability so much as futility if you actually play out the scenario. Now, when uh, Bruce Banner snaps, uh, what I found most fascinating about that is his confession later in the movie, I think to Hawkeye, but it might have been to another character when he says that he tried to bring Natalia back. Yeah. And, and it occurred to me right there that, you know, what this pair of movies, I'll, I'll, I'll just take, uh, you know, the two movies where the infinity gauntlet fully powered exists, uh, infinity war and Endgame. what they don't do that the comic books in the nineties did. And I didn't read the Thanos storyline in Oh five or whenever it was. So I don't know if it worked with this or not. But what the 90s comic books, Infinity Gauntlet, Infinity War, Infinity Crusade did was they really explored philosophically what goes wrong when a finite being gets infinite power. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this one, again, either because of the obsession with the snap or because they had to fit everything into two movies or whatever else, uh, you know, there's not nearly as much of a sense that it might not be a good thing even for the best of us to get that infinite power, right? That was the whole premise of Infinity Crusade is that the the force of goodness in the universe acquires the infinity gems and basically co-ops all of the most moral superheroes to its side, right? So, I mean, you get Captain America and Professor X and uh, Spider-Man and, you know all of these people, but you don't get the Hulk or Wolverine or the Punisher or all of these morally compromised people. And it ends up being the morally compromised that have to oppose unblinking goodness. Right. So again, you know, I, I understand the limitations. I mean, you know, even with, if you've got a limited run of say 18 issues of a comic book, you can do more than you can in two films. 
I still think though that with this big a concept, uh, I, I can understand that the studio didn't want to roll the dice on this, but you really could have turned it into four films, really explored these philosophical questions, yeah. and some really cool things could have could have happened. Then you have a DC so, movie. I mean, yeah, I, I, no, <laughs> that, that, that is that is very much true, right? Yeah. Um, now I, I will say that you know when the gems you know get put back into their timeline and i guess we're supposed to assume that they never do get reassembled again you know again at least the comic books did something with that yeah um you know obviously i mean the big changes that have happened is two superheroes are gone that used to be there yeah but you know uh i think you're right that you know this idea of whatever happens when these you know people who've been gone five years reincorporate that's definitely going to be part of every film going forward. So I'm interested to see what they do with it. Yeah. When yeah. Peter Parker shows back up at school, I mean, I'm assuming that's school for people who had been gone. Right. Uh, otherwise he's yeah. five years behind everybody. Right. And so, yeah. yeah. So everyone, everyone else is a, you know, what sophomore in college. Yeah. Nathan, I, I take your point about, uh, so you made the comment that you're not sure we're assuming that the gems never get reassembled because at least the comics had a way to deal with that. Actually, yeah. in the movie, that it deals with that because once the gems catch up to 2018, um, or whenever Thanos does his original snap, they, Thanos destroys them. So they they go back into that loop where they get destroyed in 20. Now nothing prevents you from going back in time to get them again, um, mm-hmm. but pin they particles. do get destroyed in yeah. the present. <laughs> yeah, if you got the pin particles, you can make it happen, right? And so yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, interesting. Um, and let, I want to wrap up um, in large part because I'm running out of battery on my recorder, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, which is sad, <laughs> but uh, this has been such a great conversation. I do want to like suggest that black widows, the, the inconsistency with the way the soul stone works, I think reflects a shift from a kind of pagan sacrifice um, to a more act of self-sacrifice. Um, oh, uh, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? And, and so I do think that there's a way I, and the, the feminine issues, you know, are worth considering here still. Um, but I do think that there's a way in which that, I mean, is the movie doing something kind of philosophical uh, and, and kind of moving over from a, um, you know, a kind of like brutal form of human sacrificial religion to a more, um, more familiar, I guess, something that looks closer to Christian, <laughs> at least, con- mm-hmm. concept of, of sacrificing oneself for others. Uh, and so, and not necessarily to the point of death, but I mean, just to humble oneself before others, right? And uh, even. And so, uh, I, I just want your thoughts on that since you guys are so much smarter than I am. Go ahead, Matthew. Yeah, no, I think that's an interesting observation. The, you know, sacrifice grabbing someone at grabbing a victim basically yeah um versus a scapegoat offering themselves um no that's that's an interesting contrast i I don't have a lot to say about it but i think that um you know that might help soften soften the the feminist critique bill a little bit in that um the difference between someone being forced to sacrifice themselves against their will versus um a willing sacrifice how if you take away if you take away the feminist critique at least yeah yeah there there's a there's an image there of uh certainly Gerard's idea of the scapegoat right mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. of the, the the scapegoat that everyone admits their violence against versus the scapegoat who offers themselves as a scapegoat 
in order to end the problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I even it. if it's Socrates finishing the hemlock, right? You know, I mean, it's sort of, uh, um, there's, there's other forms of this. It isn't like strictly limited to Christianity, mm -hmm. but, but yeah. yeah. And, and I'll just go ahead and say, Danny, I think you're giving him too much credit. I think she's being, <laughs> I, I think she's being bong. She, uh, <laughs> she makes sure that joy can escape the, the memory chasm. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I guess she makes sure he can escape the memory chasm. <laughs> and and I'm sure that there is some future narrative work there going to be done about the there's probably some world inside the the soul stone, right? That these these mm -hmm. people are now a part of and and may find a way out of for future movies, right? Um although well, Gamora and, and has I been that, that's something that I just now thought of, Danny, is it might have been interesting to have uh is it Natasha or Natalia? Natalia. I'm saying Natalia. Natasha. Okay, good, good, good. Natasha. No, it is Natasha. Okay. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I've been saying it wrong all episode. My apologies, listeners. I think it would have been interesting, although it would have been three hours and ten minutes at that point, <laughs> uh, to actually have a parallel scene with Natasha inside the Soul Gem mm -hmm. as Gamora was at the end of Infinity War. Yeah. And I, think, I think that you really could have done some interesting writing there. I don't know poetically what they should have written there, but whatever it was that they did write, if they had done that scene really would have had some gravity. This movie conspicuously lacks a post credit scene. And, and I think more than any of them, it needed one. <laughs> I really do wish well, there it, had gets a, it gets a whole movie epilogue. That's what far from home will do. You're right. Yeah. Um, Spider-Man is technically the last film in this sequence. Right. And so I think you're right. I think a lot of these answers are going to be uh, um, answered then. And maybe I'll take a break from my hiatus to have you guys talk on, uh, come back this summer and talk about the uh, Spider-Man far from home. So, um, Very good. well, fellas, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for, uh, for mm -hmm. chiming in. And I hope you guys uh, listening have enjoyed it. If you have any feedback, you know where to find us, uh, just uh, chime in anytime and uh, make sure that you like and subscribe to the show and uh, tell people that you like it and, uh, and, recommend that they listen to it as well. The more voices we get involved in here, the better. I want to thank Nathan Gilmore and Matthew Brake for joining me today and signing off for them as Danny Anderson with another terrible sign off. So that's it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because I